Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. In particular, this is the second of a pair of interviews on communication and healthcare today. Anyone who has tuned into debates around the Affordable Care Act beginning in 2009 surely remembers the term death panel, a rhetorical device used by Republicans primarily to foment distrust in a national health care system. While much could be said of the politics promoting the phrase, it spoke to anxieties about end-of-life care shared by all. In the hospital, awareness of an apparently foreign language of hospital codes, DNR, DNI, etc., and legal strictures can make the already difficult conversations about end-of-life care even more confusing, provoking anxiety in patients and their families about negotiating personal wishes with uncertain outcomes. Samuel Morris Brown, Assistant Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of Utah School of Medicine, grapples with these issues head-on in his new book, Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human, published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. Brown argues that the inhumanity of intensive care can be addressed by accounting more for the process behind decisions made in intensive care. In our discussion about his fascinating research, 
He described how letting interested families take part in all aspects of the intensive care process led to better understanding on their part and better contextual evaluation on the part of clinicians. I really enjoyed our conversation and can strongly recommend this book for anyone with an interest in medical ethics or anyone attempting to understand the medical system behind end-of-life care for personal reasons or otherwise. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I'm here today with Dr. Samuel Morris-Brown to talk about his new book, Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human. Dr. Brown, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thanks, Mikey. So we like to start things on the network by talking about sort of, well, A, how you got into your field, and B, how you got came to the subject at hand. And for you, I think this is uh, especially interesting because you're a practicing physician who also writes books of kind of greater, broader popular and cultural import, is how I'd characterize it maybe. So I'm interested, first of all, how you came to study medicine, and then how you came to write books on these topics. And then after that, how we got to the present book at hand. I started out in medicine. I'd grown up in a poor family in the American West as a, as a kid who loved to read and wasn't quite sure what to do with himself. And as I got to college after coming from poverty in Montana and Utah and started college at this big fancy place at, at Harvard College in 1990, I, it, it was just this explosion of intellectual possibility for me that was sort of overwhelming. And I thought initially I wanted to be a classic scholar because I loved really hard, obscure things. And I, I loved musty books. I loved languages other people didn't understand. But I I had a kind of a kind of spiritual or moral awakening just before I started college. And in that, I, I felt like my ability to read and process and think needed to be put toward a greater good in some way. And without remotely intending to suggest that other paths are not associated with morally rich lives, for me as a freshman in college, it felt like medicine was a way that I could use my mind to benefit the lives of other people. But it was a, it was a balancing act because at the time, and really for a long time after that, I thought of medicine as being a relatively dull uh, <laughs> pursuit. <laughs> you know, it felt very uh, rote. It didn't feel like there was a lot of creativity to me. So there, there was always this sense of envy that I had of my friends that were off doing these wonderful life-of-the-mind experiments in the humanities or people doing really cutting-edge physics or mathematics. And here I was learning about basics of organic chemistry and biology, mm-hmm. not even the cutting edge stuff, just the basics of it. So I, right. I was always... Realistically, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, medical school is such a slog. I don't, I don't think anybody believes it's other than a slog. And, and so I, I've always been awake to these two lives. And as I moved through medicine and then into the later training after you get out of medical school, I realized that I could keep my mind alive by being a medical researcher. And that's what I spend most of my life, most of my professional life doing is performing medical research with 
statistical analyses and physiological analyses, and that worked out really well. And I saw myself within academic medicine increasingly being drawn to less of a connection with what mattered to other people, less of that moral imperative that had drawn me into medicine in the first place. And as a counterbalance over the years, I've been involved in medical ethics and humanities, writing some intellectual history, particularly around religion and sickness and death. I wrote a little theology book. I'd I'd like to keep connected to these questions of, of deep moral import. But then we had a crisis in the family about four years ago Mm -hmm. that I talk about in the introduction of the book where it felt like it wasn't fair anymore for me to keep separated these two domains. There's my rigorous life of the mind in academic medicine, and then there's my soulful engagement with history, but I'd kept them separate like a like other people, I think, have hobbies, like they <laughs> ride bicycles or they do other dramatic things with their bodies, like marathon running. So for me, the this soulful engagement had been my highly non-athletic replacement for those enriching hobbies that other people have. Right. But what but others would surely think of is quite a bit of work in its own right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but then I look at people running marathons and I think... <laughs> Holy cow, that is a lot of work you guys are doing just to be able to say that you got 26 miles in four hours. Um, So that's how uh, life had been until this crisis. And I realized that I needed very much to bring back that soulful engagement to my medical practice and increasingly to my research. And the doctoring that I do and the research that I do is all tied up in the intensive care unit. The ICU is, it's not the ER as uh, many people think. The ER is that first place you encounter when you arrive at a hospital and they need to decide what happens next. And if you're in a terrible pickle, they'll stabilize you and then they'll send you off to me in the intensive care unit where we'll run life support systems, we'll shepherd you through emergency surgeries, we'll manage a variety of life-threatening catastrophes. And what I began to realize more and more as I opened my eyes to it was that even as we were doing a great job technically in terms of running our life support systems and dramatically improving survival from these life-threatening injuries and illnesses, we were commonly missing the broader human point. We were sending our patients and their families on from the intensive care unit with terrible scars psychologically from not just from the disease itself, which is an important part of it, but also from the way we organized and provided these life support systems, the ways we failed to communicate, the ways we failed to engage in acts of empathy. And and around that, I've founded with some wonderful colleagues here the Center for Humanizing Critical Care, and we're actively running multiple research studies and publishing thought pieces and research studies around this reform to better to better preserve the humanity of all of the people involved in the intensive care unit. And this book was designed through the Valley of Shadows to be a diagnostic book to help us see a little bit more clearly and also to be 
a call to action and a call to action that I, I wanted to be heard not only by physicians and nurses and other clinicians, but also by patients and families. Because I think Mm -hmm. what's historically been missing has been a sense of collaboration, that we're in this together, that we're a team working toward shared goals, that we care about the humanity of everybody involved. And that's the reason that I wrote it in in, in what I attempted to make a very accessible, straightforward language and prose, but then make sure that there were still endnotes that had the relevant citations to the scientific literature. Yeah, exactly. Because the book certainly doesn't shirk on the kind of depth of content that you would expect from somebody coming into this as a specialist or even, you know, other medical humanists reading this book as a sort of source of inspiration for their own research. Yeah, I wanted it to be useful across the board because I have to say these last four years have been transformative for me in in my experience as a bedside clinician. I've always enjoyed taking care of patients. I've always enjoyed the challenge of a diagnostic puzzle. I've always gotten a rush when what we do results in long-term survival. But to be honest, and I'm, I regret this now in retrospect, the patients and families were really bit players in this narrative. For me, it was the fascinating aspects of diseases and life support systems rather than so much the human experience and awareness of that process. But since, you know, we now have family members in everything uh, in the ICU. I mean, really, I'm trying to think of the last time we had to send someone out of the room against their will. It's very rare. Mm, Um, And that's from an old model that said you can visit once or twice a day for up to two hours, but otherwise the intensive care unit is just for the medical people. We have families with us during bedside procedures where we're hooking up the life support systems. We have them with us while we are making the sausage, the the rounds, these (laughs) ritualized encounters where we really think through and process the medical issues and make the decisions that will affect the course of of the patient medically. Family members now join us for rounds just as part of the team. And it's it's fun. It's (laughs) it's really great to have these new people there with you working through it. And to be honest with you, it's allowed me, I think, better to process the sadness. Because even though we've inverted mortality in the ICU. It used to be that 80% died and now 80% survive. Mm -hmm. Even though we've inverted that mortality, it's still the case that somewhere between 15 and 20% of the patients that I take care of are going to die over the course of that month. And that's a heavy burden to bear for everybody involved, including including the clinicians. And I think a lot of us have had to close ourselves off a little bit emotionally because of that. And and you're never, as a doctor gonna, or a nurse, going to be able to love every patient the way you love your life partner or your parent or your child because, I mean, you'd be suicidal after 10 of them had died. That's just too much bereavement to fit into one soul. But that anesthetic separation that so many of us feel driven toward has been a lot easier for me because of this connection with these 
families, this sense that people are these communities of love and regard, and that the affection for these family members who survive the patient and who carry these special memories of their loved one and of their loved one's wrapping up phase all have made it easier for me to bear that. I, I haven't quite worked it through at a theoretical level, but it's mm-hmm. been my observation that I, I don't have to feel to the, for the patients the way I feel about my wife. I couldn't, I couldn't work if I had to go through the loss of somebody as close to me as a life partner, you know, mm-hmm. three times a week when I'm working clinically. But, but I know how to, how to be supportive and tender to people who are themselves processing grief. And there's a sense in which we become a team together, the families when a patient's dying that has allowed me to be more engaged, but also not to, not to have that bereavement overload that leads so many of us clinicians to be isolated or distant. Right. That aspect of shared experience is really interesting because it kind of does in a way take the burden off of the, uh, primary attending physician to communicate both their experience of how they went about the case and also their knowledge to translate that in a way that's uh, digestible or intelligible to families. So by including them throughout the process, you actually just eliminate that barrier completely and you, know, you do more collaborative work than this kind of translational work, as it seems uh, like you're describing. I, you know, I used to have to, five or 10 years ago, I used to have to every afternoon go and do what I call apology rounds. Yeah. Where I would just have to go from room to room and say, I'm so sorry. I understand you feel like you haven't been getting good information. I understand you feel like nobody's paying any attention. I understand you're not sure what the plan is, even though it's four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm so sorry and people would be upset. But I, I mean, now I used to have to do apology rounds every day and now I do them once every six months Wow! because they're with us the whole time. They're with us in the beginning, in the morning, in rounds. We're making the decisions. They're with us during the procedures. They're never thrown out of the room. So whenever we stop by to take care of the patient, they're there and we talk. And I think you're correct that that there's less time having to live in the two totally separate worlds. We still do have to do some translation. We can't use absolute medical jargon mm-hmm. always and have them understand Although some of our patients, like the ones that get that H1N1, that bad Mm -hmm. swine flu, they tend to be with us for four to eight weeks. It's really quite a severe illness. And you find that the the family members of patients with H1N1 tend to really get to know everybody and and really become incredibly sophisticated medically, almost more medically knowledgeable than the medical students rotating along because they've They've cared passionately about the medicine involved, and they've done a crash course in it. So Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see increasingly as we go through these reforms, more and more sophisticated, medically sophisticated patients and families because they're welcomed to the bedside in a collaborative environment. And I think it's for the best. Mm -hmm. That's a really refreshing approach to the issue that I think others might frame as the encroachment of public knowledge on medical expertise, right? And the kinds of weird tensions that sets up when uh, patients come in expecting 
certain kinds of therapies and certain things that, you know, maybe in the physician's expert judgment, they might not choose to provide otherwise. So that sets up this weird tension in knowledge. But I really like the positive framing that, well, you seem to have with it. And on this note as well, I want to kind of uh, shift this a bit to uh, talk about how this experience or how through these experiences, you've actually documented very richly uh, the kinds of decisions and these kinds of encounters with patients. The book is full of just really, really, really excellent stories in which you are able to lay bare the uh, personal considerations on your behalf as a, as a physician and also the broader context of the patient's life and experience. And so what is your what is your practice for actually taking notes on these cases and revisiting things and, you know, kind of rehashing them and turning them into something that, you know, makes for a really compelling story? That's a great question. And I think what you realize is as a physician or as and I feel so dumb sometimes. I always want to say physician or doctor because I'm speaking from my own perspective. But really, the correct term is clinician mm-hmm. because all of the people providing care in the ICU matter a great deal and have a lot in common. So I apologize. I meant to say clinician. Mm-hmm. As a as a clinician, there are encounters with patients that stick with you indelibly, but the way a particular performance would linger for years with an opera critic. Mm -hmm. You're just, you're so attuned as a physician to stories and classically those stories are told in biomedical terms, but you, you walk into a room of clinicians and you say, um, have you ever seen this syndrome? And anybody who's seen that syndrome, if it's a little bit rare, will have every medical detail of that patient that they took care of leap immediately to mind. It's this incredible hardwired memory that we have. So we, and there's reasonable data that I understand from medical education that things are dramatically more memorable if they're placed into the context of an actual story. And so when I teach the medical students or the residents, I say, when you encounter a relatively uncommon disease, learn everything you can about the disease and then learn the rich details of the person's life so that it's stored in your memory in an evocative way. Mm-hmm. So you can remember Oh, the guy that did the micro-brewed beer and had the four-foot-tall Labrador had hemophagocytosis syndrome, and then they're on their way into that story. So we're, we're accustomed as, physici- as clinicians to medical narratives, and uh, commonly those medical narratives are stored a little bit better when you have the personal side incorporated into it. What happened to me four, five, six years ago in the in the buildup to this crisis is I was doing more work as an historian and thinking about how stories were processed in individual lives. I started to get a little bit more interested in the moral valences of those cases. And, and so I found increasingly those stories that I would remember anyway, just because I'm a clinician, became morally richer. And then once you encounter a story that really moves you, commonly you start to tell that story to other clinicians. That's part of how our culture 
propagates itself is through the swapping of these stories. Mm-hmm. You talk about the stories when you do lectures to the medical students or to the physicians in training. When you're mentoring someone in a particular area, you'll use these anecdotes to enrich. And then you'll write essays or you will um, potentially you'll write a book if you feel like a book is the right <laughs> way to go. You don't normally keep uh, copious notes on those cases. Um, you keep When you're going to write it up for the traditional scientific literature, there you keep uh, copious notes. Mm-hmm. Those are those case reports or case series that you do. When you're telling the narratives, you primarily will do it from from your memory. And, uh, you know, in some cases where people want their stories to be told, I'll actually say, hey, tell me uh, how much of your story to tell. Um, guide me through this process. Uh, and in those cases, and you get all the paperwork uh, with them signing it, you can even use the fully un, uh, unmasked uh, stories. Yeah. More traditionally in medicine, you have to do some masking of the stories in order to be able to tell them because you, you want to protect people's privacy. So you don't want to tell stories in identifiable ways. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you want to communicate the true essence of, uh, of a story. And there are there are times when to make a point, you hybridize multiple patients that you encounter. And I do that a couple times in the <laughs> book. And there I do, uh, I do a footnote. Uh, and the footnote says this is a hybridized account. And classically, there will be, if you're going to hybridize, there will be a, a patient where this aspect is really clear and then a different patient where this other aspect is really clear. And in part to maintain um, their anonymity so that you you can't just follow through and say, oh, wait a minute, I heard about this guy in my neighborhood that got treated at that hospital. Oh, my gosh. So part of the impetus for hybridization is uh, anonymity, and part of it is to, to make the point. And, and it, it's been a... It's been a complicated area. Back when I started, you basically um, hybridized or de-identified however you wanted, uh, and increasingly there are specified ways that you have to go through the process. And, and some journals even now are beginning to say, we don't want any hybridization, any anonymization. If you want to tell a story, you need to have uh, the person sign a document saying you can tell the story. Um, but it, 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 it's an area of some complexity as we, as we really try to atone for the sins of the early to mid 20th century with our research regulatory oversight. Um, we're having to find ways through that. These institutional review boards or IRBs mm-hmm. exist to make sure that we're not doing unethical research. And to be honest with you, I think as much as we grumble about them, I think they need to exist. I think we have had a spotty track record. The The question, though, becomes what should the IRBs focus on? Should they focus on traditional medical research or should they create whole new levels of 
oversight even for people that are trying to tell relevant stories uh, in a persuasive mode. Currently, IRBs do not regulate um, medical narratives that are unidentified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and commonly, unless it's a part of a report for a medical journal, uh, if you tell an identified story, as long as you have clear permission signed, then you, do, you don't necessarily have to have IRB oversight just to tell the story. But for instance, we told, we 10 years ago, maybe uh, more like seven or eight, had a patient uh, who had a really fascinating uh, issue with her heart. And we wanted to report those uh, findings and didn't identify uh, the person, but um, didn't do any scrambling at all. You know, commonly you'll scramble by changing a couple of little demographic details to make sure that it's reliably unidentified. But when you're doing a case report, you, you can't do any of the scrambling. You just have to say Ms. X is was a 45-year-old woman or, or whatever that was. And, and for that, since we were showing pictures of, of the heart and describing some of the medical course, we actually had to have an IRB approve our report of an anonymous event. So it's it's a... Sorry, I ended up... I, I've, I've been dealing with regulatory documents, <laughs> research studies for the last two days. Uh, the, the, the quick answer is that you develop this incredible eye for cases. Uh, and every clinician has that for the medical cases. And increasingly, as you become alive to non-medical details, moral or human details, those also stick with you quite vividly. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the 20th century sins that you mentioned, I kind of wanted to go into your uh, the way in which you contextualize um, the sort of changing relationships you trace in the book. So really, this is a book about, it's a book about death. It's a book about how uh, death is treated and dealt with. And obviously, as you know, any kind of good in-depth account would begin, you sort of historicize um, how people have dealt with death differently over time. And especially you trace how uh, the very kind of development of the ICU and certain technologies that made the ICU what it was over the course of the 20th century seem to kind of change the way in which death is construed, the way death is experienced, the way death is understood legally and medically. So I was wondering if you could unpack some of this for us. So first of all, do you accept my premise that over the course of the 20th century, through these various technological and legal changes, the way people experience death has changed in a distinctive way? Yeah, I think that's true. I think that there are two major cultural changes that happen that are relevant to this question. One is a progressive era change that's about 1890 to maybe 1920, 1930, that historians call the dying of death, and that's mm-hmm. a change in broader American culture about whether we have the emotional and spiritual and cultural resources to deal with the fact of human mortality. So that's one key change. But then, as you've correctly suggested, from about 1960 to about 1980, you have another huge cultural change. And in this case, that cultural change comes on the back of technology. The dying of death was very much a social reform effort that was led by progressive era reformers, whereas the change of the middle 20th century 
is very driven by technology, even as it exists in the setting of a big social transformation that's happening at the same time that you see with the disruption of old authority structures. You see the protests against the Vietnam War and the collapse of trust in the military that for at least a period of time was something that seemed quite secure. You see dramatic shifts in the way people relate to religious communities and think about their possibility of relating to religious communities. And you see changes in how people think about the structure of family and sex and reproduction. So those are happening in the 1960s and 70s as we think more about the individual versus the society, as we think more about the weak as opposed to the strong, as we think more about the historically subjugated and the historically subjugating. That's happening. And at the same time, this historically subjugating group, physicians, in this case, it really is physicians rather than other clinicians that are causing some of this complexity. You have them traditionally in a position of dominance and power, finally developing really for the first time in human history, medical technologies that bring people back from the dead. I mean, all these incredibly important cultural stories about bringing people back from the dead for thousands and thousands of years. And all of a sudden in the middle 20th century, <laughs> we, we actually have them. We have them and they're wild. The, I mean, the earliest forms of bringing people back from cardiac arrest involve, I mean, it's almost right out of a Greek myth. You cut open the chest of the mm -hmm. patient and you put your hand in and you squeeze with your own hand an unbeating heart, and then you introduce electricity through these little electrified spoons <laughs> onto the heart. And I mean, it's it's, it's almost uh, straight out of Dalen. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I was sort of thinking about Prometheus and the and mm -hmm. the birds eating his liver continually. But you're right. There's this right. There, there's this incredible sense that all this weird stuff people were always hoping they could make happen suddenly begin to happen, and Here's the trick. Some of the time they work and work really well. In fact, probably now, traditional CPR, by traditional I mean the kind that we think of as regular now, that starts in the 1940s and 50s, it really comes into its own in the, in the 1970s and 80s. That CPR saves with good outcomes somewhere between 5 and 15% of the people that undergo it. Now, that's not phenomenal, but compared to certain death, 5 to 15% is pretty miraculous. Mm -hmm. The trick, though, is that there's another group, probably equal in size, um, that as a consequence of these dramatic technologies that I'm using CPR uh, for cardiac arrest as an example of, are left in this limbo state where they're not dead. That seems reasonably clear, but they're also not fully alive. And it became a, a moral puzzle. What, what do you do with a person who's not obviously dead, but who might not really be fully alive? 
So there's that component of creating a new kind of human being or a new phase in a human being's life that matters a lot. But the second component of it that I think matters maybe even more is the introduction of agency where agency didn't once have a dramatic role. It used to be that you made peace with your death. When the time came, this was a really important part of most human culture, you confronted the fact of your dying, you made peace with it, you said your farewells, you preached, you know, if you were a Christian in the in the 19th or 18th century, you preached a sermon to the people who loved you and whom you loved in the hopes of stirring them spiritually, and then you died. You didn't choose to die. Nobody wanted to die. They just knew that it was happening and they had to make peace with it. And they used a concept called providence that we don't think as much about anymore, but it was the notion that everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm dying now, it's my time to die. God is calling me to the to heaven, uh, so I'm okay to go. But the introduction of these technologies that have a measurable but not enormous probability of succeeding suddenly means that you have to choose to die. You have to choose to refuse these marvelous medical technologies in order to die. And choosing to die in the absence of suicidality, I'm aware this is a circular uh, framing of it, but I think it's still relevant. Mm -hmm. But in the absence of what we've traditionally thought of as suicidality, nobody wants to choose to die. We, We want to know when it's our time and make peace with it and wrap up our lives. We don't want to choose to die. And I think those two components that they may work, but they may leave you in this limbo state and they introduce agency into the experience of dying in a way it had not been present before, that causes a really dramatic crisis. And so you have this moral crisis as people are trying to figure out the status, the moral status of this phase of life and the question of having to choose death at the same time that the Vietnam War shows that government is corrupt. Second wave feminism suggests that this neo-Victorian family structure is not all it's been cracked up to be. The civil rights movement says the status quo for white America was deeply immoral and must change. And unfortunately, not, not that it was found out, but that it ever happened. And unfortunately, we're having to process not only what the Nazis did, in the name of medical science, but what Harvard Medical School and School of Public Health investigators did uh, in the name of medical science. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Nazis are horrifying, but remember, it's it's Harvard that does experiments where they put radioactive isotopes in the milk of kids with developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And it's the CDC Public Health Service that is funding the Tuskegee trial that mm-hmm. takes poor African-American men in the South and doesn't treat their syphilis in the hopes of finding out what untreated syphilis will do. Mm-hmm. The news alert, it's bad. Because, right? right. But, but so we're, we're coming at the, we're, we're coming uh, to these questions at the same time that people are becoming deeply suspicious of the motives of, medical researchers and of the medical establishment writ large. And that, I think, creates a kind of 
perfect storm for a, a hunger for reform and for what ultimately I think are misguided attempts at reform that we've sort of ended up with these living wills that I talk about in the first, maybe third of the book. Yeah. And I'd like to talk more about that in a second, but I think you very naturally led into what I was going to ask about next with all this discussion of agency. And even going back to your discussion of these notions of providence, there's a really uh, good moment later in the book that I think illustrates why this is relevant. Um, You discuss uh, an example of a woman who uh, sort of wakes, I believe she wakes from a semi-comatose state and says that she has received a message from God saying that she's going to go into the ventilator and she's going to live. And you uh, offer sort of a a few different ways of interpreting uh, this and her speech. And in so doing, you kind of uh, lay bare the different assumptions um, in basically different schools of medical ethical thought, the classic debate between um, paternalism and autonomy. Uh, which itself is another uh, professional debate that does you know, shape the ways in which uh, clinicians like yourself are thinking about these questions and having to uh, defend certain practices over the course of the latter half of the 20th century. So I was wondering if you could go more into depth on uh, paternalism and this sort of resistance, uh, resistance against medical paternalism that in a way um, begets this movement to create um, living wills and to document uh, the intentions and wishes of patients in more detail? Uh, I think that's a great question. I still remember that situation. It was my intern year, that first year out of medical school. And mm-hmm. She had come to the hospital knowingly to die, was fully aware that she was dying of cancer, had signed up for hospice, was, was only really in the hospital because her family was having a hard time treating her pain. And suddenly she actually said an angel... That that I did not hybridize remotely. The the language was very specific. I've seen an angel, and the angel has told me to go on the respirator. And I wasn't sure what to do. You know, you're an intern, and sometimes you feel your way through things. And and uh, I've spent years now. I mean, that was back in my intern year. What was that like? Fifteen, sixteen years ago. I've been processing it ever since because the the classic statement of autonomism is if the patient says it that that's what you do it's not your place to sit in judgment of her beliefs about angels you know who cares whether you think they're angels she clearly thinks they're angels and she's giving you clear instructions and i've used that story in lectures over the years to various audiences from undergraduates in bioethics classes all the way up to practicing physicians. And the most common initial response is, well, you should innovate her. You should put her on the respirator. You know, she's asked for it, you do it. Um, And that is the notion of autonomy. And I argue in, in her case that that actually represents a kind of failing on our part, that in retrospect, she was calling out for kindness and reassurance and support as she was confronting her end. She was not making a specific recommendation about how we ought to use medical technologies. But it it took me years to process that situation. But what this comes from really is two sources, I think. First is informed consent. After the 1960s, 
with a horrified gasp, we discovered how ubiquitous the practice of not asking permission of a person to enter their body in some way or to increase their risk of dying or to otherwise make a huge shift in the shape of their lives without their permission. So it's the discovery of this practice that physicians had routinely been doing things without the patient's permission, or if they had done it with permission, they had done it with relatively limited insight provided to the patients. And this happens both in the clinic and in the research setting, that we're not actually asking people's permission. But that doesn't fit with Lockean liberalism, the, the, the political philosophical regime that we live under in the modern West. And that says that you need the individual's consent to govern them, to uh, do anything to them. And there should only be very overwhelming risks to the Commonwealth or to other individuals in the Commonwealth for you to override that individual agency. So there's this sense of self-determination, the ability to choose freely one's own path that is all through the founding documents of the American Republic. It's critical to the French Revolution, and it's critical to the modes of government and political life that persist afterwards. And this resistance to medical paternalism comes both because, in retrospect, it was an anachronism that no longer fit within modern Western liberal society, and because we had become concerned about clear abuses that had been performed by doctors specifically without that informed consent. So the informed consent doctrine within medicine and the sense of self-determination is the most important uh, guiding principle of government come together to what what is seen to be as the overriding value or the primary value of autonomy in medicine. And there's a law professor in the Midwest named Carl Schneider that wrote a really great book about autonomy called The Practice of Autonomy. This is maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm. that uh, really carefully walks through where autonomy comes from and then what some of the limits to autonomy are, because there's a paradox here. And specifically, that is that um, if our goal is the best flourishing of an individual according to their goals, values, and priorities, it's not obvious, even at a theoretical empirical level, that the best way to achieve that is having the individual choose from a variety of menus about what comes next. Right, right. The, but the par- the paradox there is not going anywhere. And unfortunately, it's a paradox that commonly is used to justify paternalism, mm-hmm. particularly when someone's in a weak and distracted state, such as they are when they're a patient. It's very easy to say, look, you don't know, you don't know what you're saying. This is what you need to do. This decision will lead to your best flourishing. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which self-determination is not self-determination if 
you don't get to choose how it is you get there. I mean, all you have to do is remember being an adolescent or having an adolescent in your home to remember that it's not just the ultimate goal, which you may share with your parents. It's the path to that goal that you want to be in some control of. And, and unfortunately, aut- aut- autonomism and using that in a slightly disparaging sense has become this procedural, uh, almost rigidly bureaucratic right. attempt to optimize the probability that somebody will flourish as she sees fit to flourish. But what's happened with autonomy is that commonly clinicians get the message, hands off, back away, this is not your domain. Mm-hmm. At a time that in point of fact, for the majority of people, their expression of their autonomy is to choose whom to give them guidance in a crisis and whose advice to trust. So there's a lot of empirical literature that suggests that it's only a small minority of patients that actually desire autonomously to be fully autonomous in a medical environment. <laughs> That's another aspect of the paradox. Probably in the range of 80 to 85% of people, when you ask them, do you want to exercise full autonomy, make all the decisions yourself and not have the physician or other clinicians contribute to the decision-making in some important way? Uh, they say, I want, I want a guide. I want you to hear me out. I want you to hear what my actual goals are. I want you to hear what's really important to me. And then I would either like to make the decision together, or I'd like you to make the decision for me, having processed all of the parameters that matter to me. And it's really only this about 15% of people who strongly prefer that autonomy paradigm. But, but there's the paradox. If the autonomy paradigm says you have to be able to choose. Are you allowed to choose not to make all the choices? <laughs> right, right. Particularly when there's this burden of agency. Mm-hmm. Introduce the burden of agency, and nobody actually wants it. Mm-hmm. Nobody really wants to be the one who chooses who lives and who dies. Doctors don't love it. That, that was a mis... I really think that's a caricature of what was going on with this paternalistic medicine in the 1950s and 60s. It's not like the doctors were eager to decide who lives and who dies or just got a thrill out of that power. It's that there was nobody else to do this hard work. And so as part of their obligation to patients in the profession, they were willing to do it. Mm -hmm. But it, my gosh, that, that is one of the things that really stretches you as you become a clinician is when you actually do have to choose does this person live or does this person die in some way? And most people hate it. Mm-hmm. You make peace with it if you have to, but you hate it. And so here you have this procedural approach to autonomy that says if people get uh, an informed consent conversation and have a piece of paper and they sign it, then that takes care of everything. You see clinicians unconsciously, none of them set out to do this on purpose but many of them unconsciously sort of back away. They say, here, you know, here's, here's the choice, you make it. And it's a way to not have to bear that agency. I think I tell right. the story in the book of the first time 
somebody called me on it. What, what happens is you get into this mode that, oh, I'm not actually contributing to the decisions. I'm just laying out the options and letting them choose. And then I had the mother of a boy who was dying. Um, and we talked it through and we felt like, no, the right way forward is to to let him die without continuing the life support treatments, let nature take its course. And then she turned to me and she said, Dr. Brown, I can't do this alone. I need you to do this. I need you to carry this and be with me and make sure it's the right thing. And, oh, my gosh, I, I had a totally different experience to it before, it, before she said that. And then I went back and I went through with a fine-tooth comb his entire case. I went back and talked to all the experts that were relevant to this decision and I made absolutely sure that it was the right thing because suddenly the agency was on me instead of being just placed on her. And it developed for me, it, it helped me develop sympathy for this often impossible position that the system puts people in of having to choose to pull the plug. And I would say that the majority of people that I encounter We'll use that language before we settle into a longer conversation. We'll use the language of pulling the plug mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. killing him or letting him die. And and it's my sense that this autonomy paradigm and informed consent really has put people in this difficult situation and they don't see a clear way forward. And I think a lot of the I think a lot of that old literature that talks about how irrational or crazy or inappropriate family requests are that we do X, Y, or Z procedure are, are really reflections, not of, not of the, not of the problem with self-determination per se, but a problem with this procedural form of autonomy that we've gravitated toward in the United States that's dominated by legal forms and signatures rather than guided by authentic, meaningful conversation and a sense of the physician as guide. Mm-hmm. And on that note, I'm, I'm wondering just if you could kind of briefly unpack for our listeners, you described, uh, you described in the beginning of our conversation, the uh, efforts that your group has made to include patients' families more throughout the decisions process. But is, is there a way, could you spell out kind of, you know, in plain, clear terms, what your alternative to the living will is? You know, what is, what, what can replace this kind of weird, calcified, strange legal document that seems to speak for the patient, but really speaks for the patient in a way that kind of compromises them in the end? I think this is a great question. It's an area of active research for us and for others. The, the keys, I think, are the recognition that the that um, self-determination during serious illness is dialogic. Mm-hmm. It is a conversation, and it has to be an ongoing conversation. So one aspect of it is to say just from the outset that we all know that this requires ongoing conversations rather than medical forms. So, for example, the people that are close to me for whom I may be called to speak at a time of crisis, we've had several conversations about what they prioritize, what they think about the process, what what I could best do to represent them if a crisis came. So 
recognizing that it's a conversation rather than a document and encouraging the conversations, I think, is a relatively straightforward first step that we all ought to feel comfortable undertaking now. The second piece is an interesting area of ongoing research. There's a group in Pennsylvania that's been doing some really fun work in this domain. And sorry, I'm using fun in the sense that geek <laughs> medical researchers do. I mean, innovative and statistically rich. Um, who, who've been trying to use interactive encounters with, in this case, it's actually a computer program, to try to get a better gauge of what people actually think. Mm-hmm. So it's still a bit tied to that old model, but it's improving in that it's trying to address one of the key problems with living wills, which is that half of the time, and this is well documented, half of the time the living will itself says the exact opposite of what the person meant to say at the time they completed the living will. Mm-hmm. So the group in Pennsylvania is trying to fix that part of the equation, and that's to ask multiple complementary questions to try to get at an underlying understanding. And that's that classic, I don't know if you remember from high school, how you had to take those dumb tests at the end of high school to figure out how cool your college was going to be, that SAT or whatever that stuff is. Mm-hmm. If and, and then you'd be like, I just answered a freaking question that was just about the same thing. Why, why do you keep asking me the same thing over and over again? Well, that's psychometrics. And the idea behind psychometrics is that you can use complementary questions to try to get at an underlying understanding or an underlying belief. So this group in Pennsylvania has developed and is continuing to develop some computer programs that are basically interactive testing programs that are designed to to really get at what people are trying to say. But then the third piece that I think needs to be developed, and we're working on that here, is maps. Once you have defined what a person's goals, values, and priorities are when they confront an illness that may kill them, how do you map those goals, values, and priorities onto actual medical decisions? And that has been a huge void. We've pretended it's not there by pretending that living wills actually apply, provide accurate maps. But as I talk about at length in the book, living wills apply extremely rarely. They're designed for notable, incredibly uncommon circumstances and apply not at all to the large majority of the actual problems that people encounter with a serious illness that may lead to their death. So the development of maps is tricky for some theoretical reasons and also for some practical reasons. But I think it's important, given you, Sally, here with us in the ICU, given what brings richness to your life, given how you feel about pain and discomfort and fighting on through difficult circumstances, given how you rate risk, given how you think about what phase of life you're in, given all that is you, Sally, what's the medical decision that's most true to you as a person? And that work is just starting to get done. So my recommendation right now is that if, if the person you want to have speak for you, if God forbid you're ever unable to speak for yourself, is not your legal spouse, then fill out a form 
that is a cousin to the living will called a durable power of attorney or a proxy document Mm -hmm. that says, Steve will speak for me if I'm ever unable to speak for myself. So get that set up if it's not your legal spouse. If it's your legal spouse, you don't need the paperwork. That's just an automatic part of being a legal spouse. And then talk to them. Talk to them, but don't just talk to them about the morbid stuff. Talk to them about what they mean to you and how you hope to mean to them. Reflect on the meaning of your lives lived together. Uh, And then think with them just a little bit. If I'm in a situation where things are touch and go, people are worried, I may not recover, this is how you would know that I'm dying. For example, if the doctor says he's never seen anybody awaken to normal consciousness and it seems like a credible doctor, well, that's you, you should let me go. That's you'll know that I'm dying. Uh, or um, if I ever reach a point that I could not survive without being in a nursing home. Uh, well, at that point, no more heroics, mm-hmm. something like something like that. And it doesn't have to be incredibly specific. It just has to be opening up this possibility that um, they can speak for you and that they've got a sense for whether you are someone who would fight for a 1% chance of recovery, even with your life being a bit of a mess or whether there might be some limits to what you would entertain for that. Because once you've opened lines of communication and you've clarified for people whether there is some threshold after which you would not want to proceed with invasive medical treatments, then that really for most people is enough. And then when your life changes, when you first develop some life-limiting illness, when you're getting into the later phases of life, then it's okay to sort of reconvene. And then I think it makes sense to start asking that um, would you be surprised question. I put that in the book. And and I think it's been, there's some early evidence from studies and it, it makes some intuitive sense. Basically the idea is you ask your clinician, would you be surprised if I were to die in the next couple of years, in the next five years, something like that? And if they say, yeah, I'd be totally surprised, then good. You know, <laughs> Go back to enjoying what you enjoy and living life to the fullest. But if they say, no, you know, to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised. We might be near the end. Then at that point, say, what is it about my body or my medical conditions that's got you worried in that way? What's my, what's my medical problem that's driving this? And if they say, well, it's your congestive heart failure, then you sit down with them and with this person that will speak for you. And you say, what are the different ways that the next five years could look for somebody with congestive heart failure, with my specific condition? And then start to build plans together around what's likely to happen to you. Instead of living wills ask you to make these predictions about hypothetical rare disease states that are very unlikely to ever apply to you at all. Whereas what you want is a kind of just-in-time guidance. What's what's coming up for me in the next few years? Oh, that's the decision. Okay, well, let's talk that decision through in a useful way. And that that's currently my recommendation to people, and that's certainly how 
my family and friends have all participated in it. And and I'll tell you, it can be a it can be a sweet thing. We've as we've had these conversations, and we don't have them all that often. We just have them at moments that matter, and we have one at the start of an understanding that I'll speak for them. But we we reflect on our lives together and what we love about each other. And, you know, I've asked forgiveness of people that I think I may have harmed in some way over the years. And I've offered forgiveness. If I think somebody may worry that they did me wrong at some point, then I've tried to make sure that I truly forgive them and that they know that I've truly forgiven them. And, and I think that putting it into the context of a human life well-lived is another important part that is missing from most of these living wills or equivalent documents. And then, you know, I think if you've, if you've, if you work on nurturing these relationships, if you work on nurturing these networks of people and meaning, then those networks become resilient. They become able to deal with uncertainty and difficulty and a life-threatening illness in ways that, just filling out the forms really doesn't really doesn't do for people. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that, Sam. And just on kind of a closing note, as our time is wrapping up, uh, I was just wondering, what are you working on currently? Do you have any uh, plans for books down the pipeline? Are they more of kind of history of religion uh, kind of tack, or are they on your current research? What are you thinking of? I'm halfway done with another intellectual history book that's thinking about the nature of secular modernity, specifically around ideas about language and translation and human transformation. Mm. Uh, There was in that, in my first uh, history book, I left a kind of promissory note that I would explore this question of language and identity and human transformation. So I'm trying to deliver on that promissory note. And then um, the, the, project that currently I'm just writing the proposal for that's more kindred to Through the Valley of Shadows is a book that I'm currently calling Dread. And I'm trying to think through why it is so many of us have so much dread and worry and anxiety in our lives and trying to think what the cultural contexts are for all this worry that we have and this dread thinking about how philosophy and contemporary culture is affecting it, but then also thinking about really practical questions of why are we so worried about our kids being abducted when it's statistically extremely improbable? Why are we constantly worried about our health? Why are we afraid to eat wheat? Why are we afraid to eat milk? Why why are there so many things that we're afraid of? Uh, and I've, I've been interested, my wife's a religious historian with a focus in food and mm-hmm. food ways and has taught me to cook in the last few years. And I, <laughs> I love food, but I'm struck by how much of our rhetoric about food is about fear and contamination and impurity and danger. And I'm trying to figure out why, why sweet little wheat <laughs> and the bread that is made from it has become public enemy number one. Uh, so those are the two projects, an intellectual history of religion project that's about half done, and then um, more of a 
common experience. Why is it that we're so afraid? What is it that we dread so much? And why are these things that ought to be giving us pleasure, like food, uh, are in fact filling us with fear instead? Excellent. Well, we look forward to having you back soon. Uh, So Sam, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And uh, to our listeners out there, thank you all for listening in. Thanks, Mikey. It was great to be with you. Thank you.